Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our prime time program for this Sunday, March 7th in the year 2021 here at Calvary Baptist Church in Gaylord, Michigan. We are continuing with this rather long extended series that we started at the first of the year, and it will continue pretty much until well, mid-May or so. And uh, the title of the series is Why We Believe What We Believe. The basis of this is that there are so many, so many Christians that know what they were taught, but they're not very well equipped to explain it to others, and they're also not very well equipped to properly understand what some other divisions of Christianity believe, to know how we're different, to know how we're the same, just perhaps different words, and to be able to discern the difference between when something is biblical and when something isn't. And if we don't know why we believe what we believe, we're just opening the door to situations in which we're ill-equipped to do that. I know that this seems like it's a lot of history, but as I've said so many times, the Bible is history, and it is also his story that he has revealed to us. But since the time of the Bible, so many things have happened, and we've been talking through that. We've talked about how the... Um, early days with the things like the creeds helped to protect and define the Christian faith when it was under attack. And how that's one of the things for which we, we owe a certain amount of gratitude to the Roman Catholic Church because they stood up against the attacks on the divinity of Christ and on the concept of the Trinity. They protected those during years when they were under great attack. We talked about how there was the first East-West split in the year 1054, where the Eastern Orthodox Church, sometimes called the Greek Orthodox Church, split off from the Western Church, be the Roman Church. We talked about the reasons why that was. Then we talked about the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther in Germany, John Calvin in Switzerland, names like John Knox in Scotland, Jacob Arminius in the Netherlands, well, Holland at the time, and we talked about the Reformation in England, breaking away from the Catholic Church. King Henry VIII had things that he wanted that would allow him to not have to answer to the Pope on a number of matters, including divorce. And so we talked about the strengths of those movements and the areas in which they probably dropped the ball. And then last week we began to talk about those influences where now it was 1600s and the early 1700s and people were beginning to start to make the trek across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World, to the colonies here in early America and how they brought with them their faith. And yes, we were always told they were seeking freedom from religious persecution and that is true, but they brought with them all their baggage too. And we had groups like the Pilgrims and the Puritans, and we talked about how they were different and how they have influenced Christianity in America all these years later, and how in particular they had influences on the Baptists. And then I again reminded all of us that that teaching that we were always told that Baptists are not Protestants, how I, I really think that that's at best misleading. Um, we're not Protestants in the sense that we were never part of the Catholic Church, but we are very much a product of the Protestant Reformation, have been heavily influenced by it. And people often refer to that group called the Anabaptists, 
back in Switzerland in the mid-1500s. And yet, in a lot of ways, when you look at what they actually believed, they probably are a much better match of a distant cousin or a, you know, an early descendant of the, uh, what today would be the Mennonites than they would be of us as Baptists, in particular Baptists here in America. So now we're going to go to something that was starting in the 1700s. And it found its way to the shores of America within oh, 150 years or so. But we have to look at the roots of it. And it was a movement that, for lack of a better term, was called theological modernism. Today we would call it theological liberalism. And in many ways, they thought they were doing something that was very honorable. And yet they opened the door to almost everything that has gone wrong with Christianity today. So let's talk about those things. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to, to open our ears and our minds and our hearts to, to realize that so much time has passed over the years and sinful man has tried to, <laughs> to modify the Holy Scriptures in ways that are more to his liking. Whether actually through translation or whether through application, so often we tend to want to want what we want and we almost start to deny that we're created in your image, but we want to basically modify you so that you are essentially created in our image. Help us to never do that, Lord. Help us to seek the truth. Help us to be kind. Help us to not be so dogmatic at times that we can't even see when we're wrong. We just ask your blessing on these lessons and that people would grow in their faith and grow closer to you to be more useful for your service. I ask this in your name. Amen. All right. There was something that began to happen in the 1700s, early to mid um, 16th, early to mid 17th century. So really it was probably more of the mid 1600s that it started and then it really took off in the 1700s. It was a secular movement, but it was something of a reaction against all of the things that were going on in that era too, as the Protestant Reformation unfolded more and more and more. And that was called the Enlightenment. Perhaps you've heard the term, sometimes called the Age of Reason. It came from really three geographic locations, somewhat in France, somewhat in Germany, and somewhat in Great Britain, uh, Scotland in particular. It was marked by changes in thought that really contrasted with the philosophies of the previous centuries. Enlightenment thinkers basically cast off religion and they looked at philosophical and political ideals instead as they moved forward. In other words, it was very much a movement that was leading towards the idea of secularizing the faith. It's generally thought to begin with the ideas of a French philosopher, René Descartes, and it culminated in the French Revolution in the late 1700s. This, um, this movement covers about 150 years worth, and it had a very significant impact on all of Western culture. And when I say Western culture, I'm talking about Europe, and therefore, that comes with those early settlers to America. So let's talk about these major aspects of this Enlightenment. One of the main aspects was what's called rationalism. 
Again, that French philosopher René Descartes introduced rationalism into physical thought. His work encouraged other thinkers to question long-standing assumptions, including their own, they call them presuppositions, you might say the lens that they bring to everything. The predominant theme of rationalism is that concepts and knowledge can be gained independently of sense experience. We can think our way to the truth. And by emphasizing the power of the mind over the senses, rationalism provided a framework for philosophers to push the limits of what can be known by human reason alone. You might say, boy, sounds pretty deep. Well, the problem with it is that it has shifted the basis of truth from what God says to what man says. Now, partly in response to this, and partly of its own doing, something came up called empiricism. It was in contrast to rationalism. Empiricism holds that knowledge begins with the senses. A man named Francis Bacon, not an unknown term, not an unknown name, planted the seed for this empiricist thought. And eventually, that led to names like Isaac Newton, the famous physicist, uh, developed the theory of gravitation. Since natural science begins with observation and through the senses, the scientific revolution of that era couldn't have occurred without an empiricist philosophical underpinning. And that's when another person comes into play that We'll talk about in a bit a man named John Locke, an Englishman, L-O-C-K-E, developed his famous analogy that we come to this world with a blank slate. Tabulurutsa was the name or the term, and this blank slate that everything that we learn as being good or bad is conditioned in us. Obviously, again, you have replaced what God has said with what man will say. I might add something about John Locke. He had a significant influence on the early American founding fathers, so that's something to be aware of as we go on through this, through this particular podcast. Now, a note about the Enlightenment thinking is this noticeable shift away from religion and towards only the things that you can know. And that opened the door to any number of other things, including two names we'll talk about in a bit, Friedrich Schleiermacher and Immanuel Kant, who I mention a lot. Now, it was a big era for science, obviously discovering all sorts of things, everything from the fact that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, that the Earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. So many things that at the time challenged somewhat of the teachings of the church. And all of these things added up to opening the door to people starting to say essentially the same thing that the serpent had said to Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? Now, I'm not somebody, and those of you that know me know I am not somebody that suggests that we not think things through. Quite the contrary. I do think that way too many churches, and quite honestly, way too many Baptist churches, teach um, the avoidance of any kind of critical thought. Basically, they teach, do what I tell you. And my criticism of that is that, for one thing, that's very Roman Catholic. But that being said, there was a huge impact on religion in the Enlightenment. It's important to note that this period 
as the Protestant Reformation is going on, the, the power of the church as one, one big church was becoming so splintered. And so the church no longer had control because it didn't speak with one voice. That was the negative side of the Protestant Reformation. Many of these early Enlightenment thinkers were people who were raised in the church and they claimed to be Christians, but they held some unorthodox beliefs, including one that many of the early American founding fathers had. Not all, of course, but many did have, and that's that they were deists. They believed in a God of some form, but not necessarily the God of the Bible. When we say America was founded as a Christian nation, you've heard me say a number of times, well, kind of. We were formed on Christian principles, on Judeo-Christian ethics and principles. That, I think, is undeniable. But not all of them were Christians, and many of them held ideas that today we would recognize as the roots of liberalism. The point was is that we had religious freedom here. There was no state church. The idea being that the people themselves would be far better to maintain a biblical worldview than a government that was attempting to mandate it, which is what had been going on in Europe for years with those state churches, they called them. So that's the beginning here of the Enlightenment. Now let's talk about just a couple of names that came along in there. One of them was a man named David Hume. David Hume was sometimes called the Scottish skeptic because he was skeptical of anything that could not be proven through empirical facts. Religious claims based on faith, not knowledge, was something he completely rejected. He rejected miracles. He rejected the argument from design for God's existence. The idea that when you look at the universe and how vast it is, only a a holy, almighty God could have designed that. He completely rejected all of that. The thing is, is that when he wrote the things that he wrote, he was writing them thinking that he was trying to correct where Christianity had wandered off. And before he knew it, he had wandered off so much that it was absolutely devastating in terms of Christianity. So there's one name to be aware of, David Hume, his influence on Christianity was that it weakened it. He didn't deny Christianity, but he tried to remove its reliance on divine revelation. And in doing so, he basically set the foundation to define God in man's eyes. So, devastating to Christianity. Now, in England, just to the south of Scotland... Along comes a man in the late 1600s named John Locke. And here's the one that I talked about. He didn't believe that reason has no place in the Christian life. He thought that the content of divine revelation can't be evaluated by reason, but we should use reason to evaluate whether or not it was actually divine revelation. Locke put forward different arguments for the existence of God and the possibility of miracles and the deity of Christ, but his most lasting impact on Christianity was his writings on ethics and government. He held that something called natural law teaches us that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. For men being all the workmanship of the omnipotent and infinitely wise maker, is what he called that. And it was John Locke that influenced men like Thomas Jefferson, 
years later expressed his ideas in the Declaration of Independence. Have you ever heard this statement? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was Thomas Jefferson, heavily under the influence of the writings of John Locke. Now, the freedom of America allowed Christianity to flourish, but the American ideals of democracy and tolerance were in large part due to the heavy reliance of the Founding Fathers on the writings of John Locke. To that extent, the United States was able to sway other governments in the direction of freedom and tolerance of different religion. Those governments, therefore, were more tolerant of Christians within their borders. But as our country strays further and further from these principles attributed to John Locke, Christian morality becomes increasingly intolerable and Christians are more susceptible to persecution. Here's the irony. John Locke would have been very much of what people in the day would have been called a liberal, but it would have been a lowercase l, a classical liberal, because he wanted change. A conservative is somebody who wants to conserve what is there. The words in their modern-day political uses are not the same thing of what they were several hundred years ago, and so we have to remember that. Martin Luther was considered a liberal. John Calvin was a liberal. The Puritans were liberals because they wanted to challenge the, the, the power and the sameness within the Church of England. They were viewed as liberals. That's the irony. Not a liberal the way we look at it today. So you have this impact on Christianity throughout Europe and now coming to the colonies in America. And it was so devastating that people no longer felt like they could even trust what they were taught. And that's where these two weird German dudes come into play. I've mentioned them frequently. I kind of like pronouncing their names myself. <laughs> Friedrich Schleiermacher and Immanuel Kant. Schleiermacher lived from 1768 to 1834. He was an influential philosopher, and he paved the way for what was called modern theological liberalism. He was um, heavily influenced by a movement called rationalism. He became a skeptic, and he abandoned what would be orthodox Christianity. He wrote a letter to his parents in 1787 explaining his position. He said, I cannot believe that he who called himself the Son of Man was the true eternal God. I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement because he never expressly said so himself. I cannot believe it to have been necessary because God, who evidently did not create men for perfection but for the pursuit of it, can possibly intend to punish them eternally because they have not attained it. Now Schleiermacher, his view was that God was so imminent he was close to us, he was caring, but essentially he wasn't all-powerful. There were certain things that surprised him, and God had to adjust. He had to go with plan B. Essentially, I mean, it's much more complex than that, but essentially, at the bottom line, that was the result of Friedrich Schleiermacher in his attempt to rescue God from the writings of David Hume, 
he described a God that was not the God of the Bible, that may have been close and caring and loving, but is not all-powerful. He is too imminent. Now, the response to that was his fellow countryman in Germany, Immanuel Kant, that same era, the, basically the last uh, 70 years or so of the 1700s, he centered on workings in things in mind regarding to reason, aesthetics, and the nature of reality. His writings are considered to be, at the time, very profound writings. His famous argument for critiquing the traditional arguments for the existence of God was something he called a categorical imperative, which has an impact on the way we think about ethics. His thinking said the following, if everyone in the world took this action, what would the result be? In other words, a person might excuse excuse an instance of lying or cheating by arguing it doesn't harm anyone. But if everyone excused lying and cheating on a regular basis, what kind of world would it create? Kant's categorical imperative, in his mind, helps the cause of Christianity. If everyone in the world followed Christ's teaching and loved their neighbor as themselves, this would undoubtedly be a better world. I think we can accept that. The problem is that in doing so, Kant described a God that is more distant, is more remote. Uh, the theological term is transcendent. And since he's more distant and remote, he is somewhat uninvolved. And again, he therefore is not all-powerful. It's almost as if he's describing a God who pops in every now and then, maybe every 20 or 30 years, and basically says, how's it going? And somebody says, well, God, this happened and this happened. And God says, really? I didn't think you guys would do that. You ought to know better than that. Well, you know what I told you to do. I'll be back in 50 years. Let me know how it's going. In either case, whether it was Kant's image of God as this distant, remote God that we can know but only distantly, and he isn't all-powerful, or Schleiermacher's view of God was that he was so close and so imminent and always caring and loving, but not all-powerful and sometimes surprised by different things. Both of them, in their efforts to try to rescue God, so to speak, from the writings, the devastating writings of David Hume, they ended up opening the door to what would be the modern theologically liberal movement in which you really can't know truth. You can't have assurance of salvation. You can't really believe that what you have is accurate. This is the challenge to opening the door to thinking, and I'm guessing that this is the reason why many years ago the Catholic Church took an attitude and approach with people that basically said, look, we've got the training and the background. You guys don't have the background to understand this stuff. Just trust us. Do what we tell you to do, and we'll get you into heaven. We got the connections. And that's essentially what happened in the Catholic Church, particularly from about the 5th century up through the, well, relatively recently. And along the way, there was pushback against that, including the East-West split in 1054, and then the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, starting in Germany with Luther, and then continuing on with all those other countries. 
and the influences that they had here on early America. And I've talked about the pushback against those reforms and even the rejection of the reforms to the reforms and how the early settlers in colonial America brought with them their views on this matter, but they brought with them their baggage too, the pilgrims and the Puritans. And then today we've covered the Enlightenment in the 1700s, the last part of the 1600s and most of the 1700s, and people were asking all sorts of questions. And the church was splintered by now. It no longer spoke as one voice, and since it was splintered, it didn't have power. And so people were um, empowered by these new freedoms that they had. One of the problems with freedom is that it opens the door for people to make the wrong choice. One of the beauties of freedom is that the basis of your choice has to be something other than the government telling you what to do. There's a balance with all those things, isn't there? But the idea is that this movement called theological liberalism started to open the door to things that eventually led to teachings such as the idea that we can't really know the truth. We can't know for sure if the Bible is God's word and whether these things actually happened or whether they're all the thoughts of man about God. And they're just simply analogies and stories to explain what they were feeling and experiencing at the time. And you end up with the way that some denominations today are. Essentially, they're dispensing a bunch of be-nice-to-one-another forms of advice, speaking in ethical terms, and many of the things that they say you might agree with, but they have totally left out the reason why they would be true. And when you disconnect those kinds of things from a biblical truth, you take God out of the equation. And when we take God out of the equation, you are guaranteeing that we're going to wander off. And countries throughout Western Europe and the Americas in the last 50, 60 years, we can see the roots of that. They've all wandered off to different degrees. What we have to remember is this. People have been wandering off and trying to come up with their own understanding of God, basically creating them in their own image. They've been trying to do that ever since the Garden of Eden. You know how much I caution you about basically being chicken little and saying, oh, the end is near, the end is near. Well, maybe it is, but maybe it's not. And no matter how near it is, are you going to sit in a corner and say the end is near? Or are you going to get out there with a heart for souls who haven't yet come to know Christ as their Savior? And that's why it's so important that we know why we believe what we believe. And that's why I get so worked up about that stuff. Because it's true for you, and it is true for me. So that's a very quick flyover and overview of this, the roots of modern theological liberalism. It shifts the focus from what God says to what man says about what God says. And eventually, you end up with nothing but a bunch of mush. <laughs> and we certainly can't fall into that bottomless pit. That's our lesson for tonight. I hope you find it interesting. I encourage you to just do a little reading, do a little snooping around on the internet. See what you can learn about it. Ask questions. Let me know how I can help you. 
through all these challenges, whether it be back in the very early days of the first and second century AD, the challenges to the divinity of Christ and the concept of the Trinity, to all of the other challenges along the centuries up through today. Satan has always been at work trying to deceive people, and the Holy Spirit has always been at work as a hedge against that. Whose side do we want to be on? That's the key to remember. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. Have a great week, and we'll see you again very soon. Take care.